Welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. My name is Gus Docker and I'm here with Robert Traeger. Robert, maybe you want to start by introducing yourself to our audience. Oh, sure. Uh, well, thanks so much, Gus. I'm so glad to, to be with you. I'm Robert Traeger. I am a social scientist. I uh, have for many years been at UCLA where I was a professor and I'm recently moving from there to Oxford uh, where I will co-direct uh, the uh, Oxford Martin AI Governance Initiative. Uh, and I guess I'll have a position at the Blavatnik School and I'm also the International Governance Lead at the Center for the Governance of AI, which is also based in, in Oxford. Uh, so that's me. That's perfect. So it sounds like you know a lot about AI governance, which is exactly what we're going to talk about today. So um, what is it that we're trying to achieve with, with AI governance? What, are, what risks are we most afraid of? What risks are we most afraid of? That, what, a good, what, a, what an interesting first question. Um, There's so many things uh, to, <laughs> to be worried about. Uh, and, and there are different ways of categorizing risks. So one way that people sometimes do it is into the three buckets of misuse risks, accident risks, and structural risks. And I think that is pretty, a pretty sensible way to, to think about it. Um, and there are all kinds of misuse risks, right? Um, this technology is democratizing the ability to do things in general. So uh, some of those things are, are misuses. Um, and it's also potentially supercharging the well, other domains of science. And that presents some risks in itself. Because, for instance, if uh, biology is uh, more effective at, at doing things, uh, then uh, it can be more effective at doing some things that are harmful. And uh, so there, so there's some risks associated with that. Of course, there are um, to go along with, of course, all of the the positive aspects of uh, of the technology and the extraordinary things that it can do for the world. So, two examples that I've heard thrown around is the possibility of creating an engineered virus to potentially create a pandemic that's that's worse than than COVID nineteen, and the possibility of cyber attacks help by these advanced uh, AI capabilities. Do you think those would be the two kind of top priorities to prevent? Oh, gosh, top priority is a really, is actually a really tough question. Uh, I think that those are important priorities. I, I wouldn't want to say they were the only priorities or, or, or even the top priorities. But I, I do think that um, those are some examples of things that uh, progress even near-term progress in, a, in AI uh, can, can really democratize the ability to do things in those areas. And so there are certainly things that we ought to be worried about. So when we talk about democratizing these abilities, one, one criticism that I've heard here is that, well, what's the difference between just searching with a search engine and finding this information? as opposed to getting it through perhaps a language model or gaining knowledge about biological weapons through one of these AIs. The, the threats we're worried about, how are they different from whatever information people can find online already now? Well, I don't think we want to exaggerate the, the threats of uh, sort of the systems that exist today also. I think uh, people are right. You know, I remember talking to um, 
some of the people who were doing some red teaming on, on some recent systems. Uh, and uh, they were coming from the national security establishment. And their view was basically, you know, these things are uh, making things up. And they're making things up from a knowledge base that is all not classified information. And so how dangerous can they really be? And I think, you know, that's, uh, that's important to, to recognize those, those bounds on what current systems can do. So I think there's a question about what the next generations of systems will be able to do, certainly. But even when it comes to current systems, I mean, you use this cyber example, uh, being able to write code is very powerful. And, um, and so when you have people who, not, who now don't actually have to take a course in coding or many courses in coding in order to do something, but presumably can convince uh, a language model to do it for them, uh, that can be much easier and, and mean that a much wider uh, section of the public can think about doing those things. So that's what we mean by democratizing. I think there are some risks, uh, very significant ones, uh, along those lines in, in bio and cyber that you mentioned and, and a whole host of, of other things. And you know, while we're talking about these things, probably we shouldn't, think, we shouldn't forget about social justice also and access to the technology and having a voice. Uh, that is, these technologies are affecting everyone. So everyone deserves a voice in what happens, how they're governed, how they evolve. Um, and I don't think we're, we're there right now. Uh, so really, there's a lot of work to be done on the governance front. And also, we should keep in mind how quickly these technologies are improving. So we might find ourselves continually surprised by new capabilities that we hadn't uh, predicted beforehand. And so just because something uh, isn't possible right now, maybe it's possible in six months or in two years or whatever. Uh, that's a great point. I mean, people, I think when they're thinking about, for instance, what should be released to the public, what technology should be classified and not, often they think, well, is it dangerous today? But if there are 10 steps that are involved in making a technology that, that's dangerous and you release information about the first nine of them, well, then you've really proliferated the technology. And we've made mistakes about that in the past. You know, in the past, uh, we have, uh, you know, some of the techniques, for instance, for diffusing uh, uranium, we thought, well, these techniques aren't going to work, but those may work. So we classified one set and, and not the other set, but it turned out to be the reverse. And as a result, some of those techniques are much more widely dispersed in, in the world than they otherwise would be. Um, so I think, you know, these, the, these downstream effects are, are extremely important. I totally agree with you. And, and exactly, when it comes to AI, what can be built on top of current day systems, even just that beyond, you know, what's the next iteration of, of the large language models or something like that, but what can be built and done with current systems with different forms of access? We don't know the answer to that question. So... Uh, yeah, there's a there's a whole range of risks, as you point out. Yeah, even if we if, even if we stopped now and didn't train any larger language models, uh, we would still have a lot to explore about the capabilities of a system like uh, GPT four, for example. Um, I, I think we haven't exhausted what it, what the what this system can do, even even if we we're just talking about implementing it in different ways or trying to get it to do new things. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I like the idea that others have talked about that we could think of a language model as kind of 
the system one in the sense of Kahneman's system one and system two in the brain. I like that idea. It seems sort of right to me. And, and obviously in the brain, there are all these systems that are kind of built on top of, of other systems. And I think it's the same. We don't really understand how those systems work in the brain and we don't understand how they work in large language models and the sorts of interpretability that we have are several generations behind in terms of uh, trying to to figure out uh, how these models are are working that's absolutely right it's it's uh, even the current systems are a sort of frontier to be investigated in terms of understanding them yeah if, if we return to the question of governance ai governance for for a moment i think one important place to start is to talk about the incentives involved, just because institutions respond to incentives. So when, when you look over the landscape of governments and companies, what do you see as the incentives for, for the various governments involved and for the various companies involved? Well, motives are mixed. Of course they are. And there are lots of individuals who want to do the right thing out there. Uh, and it's often fascinating to watch them be a part of an organization that has an organizational imperative. So an individual might have all sorts of ideas, be they in a government or in a company, and they want to do uh, one thing, but then there's, there's an organization that has an incentive to, let's say, maintain its reputation. Or there's just a range of institutional incentives that make it hard for, I think, individuals to always do the things that, that they want to do. But the organizations, of course, they have mixed motives. That's what makes it such an interesting and complicated strategic landscape. Uh, and, and mixed motives, by the way, uh, are exactly the sort of thing that are hard for uh, AI strategic systems to deal with, right? We have superhuman systems uh, that deal with the two-person zero-sum case. But when we're talking about a complex environment, which involves both uh, incentives to cooperate and incentives to compete. Um, we don't really have superhuman, uh, at least when there are multiple uh, actors uh, in that in that case. So, you know, those are those are the complicated cases, and that's the world that we're in when it comes to the to governments and uh, <laughs> when it comes to the governments and the and and all of the uh, labs in the area. So one account I've heard is just that both governments and companies are incentivized to just rush ahead. For companies, it's about gaining market share. For governments, it's about gaining kind of geopolitical power. But isn't there a, another incentive to, I mean, for, for companies to create products that they can actually sell, these products must be at least somewhat safe for the consumer. No, no company is interested in, in selling a, a self-driving car that, that kills the, the driver. Um, and and for, for governments, I mean, there's, there's, the, there's a question of international reputation. And if you, if you have accidents with your AI systems that might cause embarrassment, it might uh, weaken your alliances with your, with your allies and so on. I think you're right about the, the question of, of mixed motives here. But which incentives do you think are strongest? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that there are these uh, incentives against allowing regulatory backlash, for instance. Uh, we really have seen that in other industries, like most famously the nuclear industry uh, after Fukushima, for instance, uh, the, the industry experienced, and Chernobyl, the industry experienced a huge contraction. So industries have 
an incentive to avoid that. Some of the um, self-regulation on the part of companies is them being preemptive and worried a bit about the regulation that's coming and therefore regulating regulating themselves. So I think I think on the one hand that that's right that that companies are worried about those things. On the other hand, they have these other incentives also, as you point out, to be first to market and to race quickly. And um, which of those went out in a particular case is I think is in a way unknown. But I think it's also fair to say that um, industry players and countries when they're competing with other countries, they have some incentives which are different from the broad societal incentives. I don't think we can get away from that, even though they have some incentives that are um, that push them in the in the direction that maybe we as society would would want to push them, in the sense of well they they're worried about a regulatory backlash. That's great. They're worried about regulatory backlash. I want them to be worried about it. You know, they're worried about bad regulation from governments, and therefore they're self-regulating. I love that. You know, bad the potential of bad regulation from governments is good in this case. Uh, so those things those things are great. On the other hand, I don't think we can rely there on incentives being totally aligned because they won't be. They're still private incentives that these countries or institutions or even in some cases individuals have that are different from the general interest, even though they have some things that push them in the in the way that we would want them to be pushed. You've written about regulation and the need for international Uh, AI governance regulation. So perhaps we could talk about why AI governance, why does this regulation have to be international in order to work? I think there's some questions that we don't fully know the answer to in, in order to figure out whether we really need lots of international governance or just some international governance. So I think there's a, a set of questions that we can start to ask ourselves to figure out what sorts of international governance are are really important. But I guess what I would say is if we're not thinking about international governance, at the very least, we are not addressing some buckets of risk. So just to give you an example, and maybe we'll get to this later, um, but you know, one of the questions that we can ask ourselves is, um, Can we just regulate by controlling some, uh, let's say, compute supply chains among a small set of, of allies? And you know, maybe that can mitigate quite a lot of risks. I think that's a possibility. But I don't think it's a certainty. Because for instance, it might be the case that existing compute that's out there uh, can produce quite a lot of risk already and these things are are still debated you know so even if you don't for instance have access to the latest uh, ai data center chips you might be able to have some technical workarounds that allow you to use non-state-of-the-art chips many more of them maybe somewhat more slowly but nevertheless uh, use that compute that you as an actor have access to, to do all sorts of things. So we, we don't really know the answer to that kind of question, where lots of risks are going to come from. And then there's all kinds of related questions we, we don't know the answer to. We don't know the answer to whether, for instance, AI systems are going to be 
able to protect against other AI systems? So if the answer is yes, then that's great. You know, then you, you need less international governance and, and that's like one problem or set of problems that we don't have to worry about. But I would say that um, I don't think I would bet in that direction. At the very least, there are going to be some real trade-offs uh, if that's the direction that we're going in. And so I think when we, when we think about international governance, it's, it's a question of addressing some of the risks that we can address through some feasible strategies that, that I think we have, rather than relying on other strategies that are, are somewhat tenuous and might work, but we really don't have good reason to think that we're living in those worlds. Yeah, so are there types or categories of risks that uh, international regulation is particularly well-suited to solve or to alleviate for us? That international in particular is well-suited to alleviate. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I think that civilian governance is one area that we can really make progress. I think one of the reasons why uh, we throw up hurdles in the way of international governance is because we think about the difficulty of trying to have arms control of some variety. And that it's not controversial to say that that is, is very difficult. And you know we don't have to look far. We can look, for instance, at the attempt to regulate lethal autonomous weapons. You know, More than a decade of attempt to do that in the context of the CCW, the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, uh, through the United Nations in Geneva. And I think that has been effective in creating some norms. And I think that's important. But on the other hand, the, the advocates for regulation, they've really wanted positive law and they haven't gotten that. And it probably is not a coincidence that they haven't gotten that. That is 10 years ago, probably uh, that outcome could have been predicted. So arms control, you know, we can talk about all sorts of analogies. It's very difficult. Civilian governance is, I think, the kind of thing that we have some viable models of. And I personally, uh, along with some others, uh, think that the models of things like the International Civilian Aviation Organization, the International Maritime Organization, the Financial Action Task Force, uh, that these, these models are, are good ones. I'm happy to go into that more, but that gets into some detail. Yeah, so when you say civilian AI, you're, you're simply talking about non-military AI, is that correct? Yeah, I think we, you know, we have a white paper that's coming out on this topic and, and we use a slightly different definition, but I think that definition is fine for our purposes. If we begin regulating on a global scale and have one set of regulations that, that apply to all of the world, does this prevent us from discovering the best possible regulations? So, so my worry here would be that we can't experiment with different types of regulations, say that you have uh, 200 countries each with their own regulation, and then you see, you, you, you monitor the outcomes and then see what works best. That's, that seems to be something we are, we are shut out from doing if we have one set of regulations for the entire world. If, if we set aside the, the issue of whether that's even feasible and, and whether we would have time to make such uh, investigations and so on. But uh, do, you see a, do you see a problem with applying one set of rules to, to the entire globe? Oh, we should not even attempt, absolutely should not attempt to, to apply one set of rules across all domains of AI governance to the whole world. For instance, 
Europe uh, and China and the US have different preferences over privacy regulation. And that's good. They should be allowed to have different approaches. Societal values should be reflected in national regulation. And, um, and we shouldn't attempt to quash that. On the other hand, there probably are some areas of, I would characterize them as minimal standards where we can consent and we can agree. And those are probably the things that should be internationalized. I agree with you that experimentation is important. I, I'm all for empirical experimentation. At other times and places, I've, been, I've thought of myself as a theorist, but being a theorist, I know the limits of theory, and I really appreciate the opportunity for experimentation. I think it would be good here. On the other hand, it, it also depends on the stakes. We don't want to be experimenting. You can do inefficient experimentation also. So no, we don't want one-size-fits-all regulation. We want to agree on some minimal standards. We want to investigate whether those standards are the right standards. But in some cases, probably we don't want to have too much experimentation also. And so that set of minimal standards would apply globally and would be one size fits all in a sense. But with room for significant national variability within that, uh, those kind of common standards. I think that's right. I think there are certain things that you wouldn't want Uh, any country in the world to uh, release a system that made it very easy to do harms that um, other systems uh, and actors couldn't defend against. Right? That would be a pretty minimal standard. Or you know, people worry about agentic AI, and if you have an AI which is power-seeking or, or something like that, uh, then that would also be the sort of thing that You would want to prevent any actor from doing, but you know, within those kind of basic limits, I think it's good for different societies to make different choices. Am I understanding you correctly that you're pessimistic about getting a common set of rules for military AI? That's a really interesting question. I think there are some things that I, I don't think we can give up on thinking about arms control, not at all. I think there are lots of things to, to think about. I just think that that is maybe the second thing to think about. And civilian regulation, because so much of the development is already going on within the private sector, uh, and, and it's an easier problem. I think it's a problem we should do first. And maybe at the same time, we can be worried about what we can do in terms of, uh, in terms of the military side of things. Yeah, because if, it seems to me that if we leave out the military side of things, we might not have solved the problem at all. If, if we have uh, dangerous AI systems in, in US and China militaries, then the problem almost is, is, is fully there. Why would you start with the civilian side and then try to move to the, to the military side? Well, the main reason you know, is that it, it's um, what I think can be done uh, in the near term. I think there are so many challenges uh, on the military side. One thing that is will at some point maybe be available is a non-proliferation regime with norms of use. And you know that can deal with a whole class of risks when it comes to uh, maybe not the countries that are absolutely at the forefront, but, but other countries. And any agreement like that has to have, almost certainly has to have a development component too in, in order to get any traction as well as just from the point of view of, of societal justice. There are things we can do on the military side, or there, there may be, 
and a non-proliferation regime with some norms of use, although there are specific challenges when it comes to norms of use with respect to AI. Because for instance, you, you know when a bomb goes off, uh, so you can say, well, we should have a no norm against that happening because you know when it happens. On the other hand, when a lethal autonomous weapon is used, it's hard to say if the autonomous capabilities were actually engaged. And more broadly, it is hard to know if, if AI has actually been engaged and used. Uh, so I think as a result, uh, that means that it's uh, difficult, more difficult potentially to develop norms of use. And when we think about, for instance, deterrence or mutually assured destruction, mutually assured destruction is a contested term, but I think we have an idea about what we mean and there's a popular idea about what we mean. And, and so we can just say that it's harder to have that sort of deterrence equilibrium when it is unsure when a system was actually used. And so it's possible that we could really be in the world of, let's say, cyber technology, where the actors, the state actors, are doing all sorts of things to each other within some limits, but in terms of developing the capabilities to do things, uh, they're doing everything that they can, and they don't even try really to have agreements to prevent each other from doing it because they, they don't see how they could be sure that uh, their adversaries were actually complying with such an agreement. So it's possible that with advanced AI, we'll be in a similar sort of a world. And that would mean it would be very hard to have uh, regulations among major powers. But even then, I think there's the possibility for non-proliferation regimes, uh, as I say, with a, with a development component also. Yeah, and what exactly do you mean by, by that in, in this context, in the context of, of AI? Non-proliferation -pro of, of the AI systems themselves, or how, how, do, how exactly does it work? So AI is, is often talked about in terms of three parts, the, the data, the algorithms, uh, and the compute. And I think we can think about non-proliferation of, of all those parts, actually. So there's some ideas that uh, may be, uh, in fact, dangerous ideas, um, you know, just like we have classification and, and the so-called born secret doctrine in nuclear policy. Uh, we might need to say that, well, some ideas are, are not the sort of things that we're going to allow out into the general public or allow uh, to some uh, governments around the world. So when we're talking about computing hardware, it's easier for me to see how non-proliferation would work. You could talk about export controls. Yeah, it's a physical thing. When you're talking about data and algorithms, it's, it becomes more difficult for me to see how that would work. As soon as something is online, uploaded somewhere, isn't it just out there? Uh, would we, wouldn't we need kind of a military-grade information security in order to, to secure non-proliferation of, of the algorithms and the data? Well, I think it's a huge topic, sort of cybersecurity in labs. I don't think we should at all give up on that. I think it's, uh, it's incredibly important. And, uh, and we may need a military-grade security. There's a justifiable uh, focus on compute, which you also reflect, and I agree with that. But on the other hand, we don't really know if we're in a, in a world where doing dangerous things requires lots of compute or, or not. We, we actually don't know that yet, for sure. Uh, and so I, I don't think we should rule out all the other things that we might have to do uh, if, we're, if we're in the other world. And no matter what world we're in, I think you know, there are certain ideas and capabilities that probably we don't want being generally available. 
And so, you know, if you're talking about securing systems against a determined state adversary, that's one thing. If on the other hand, you're talking about securing information against uh, general knowledge or something like that, that's something else. And we should probably be investigating both of those uh, avenues. Yeah, and also these three components can be traded off against each other. So if we have a strict limit on compute, we uh, companies might be able to invest heavily in algorithms or in data collection and, and, and management and, and thereby still uh, make a lot of progress. And in that situation, you might even have a what's called a hardware overhang so that you're, you're building up your algorithm or you're improving your algorithms and you're improving the way you, you construct your, your training data such that when the hardware becomes cheap enough, or if the hardware improves, you can make significant gains in, 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 uh, in a quick amount of, or in a pretty fast. What we're trying to do here is to think about in advance what, how we might uh, govern AI. And just if you look at the historical track record, you, you were talking about um, autonomous weapons. Uh, this, is, this is something that's pretty difficult to do. What we attempted to do with autonomous weapons was to think in advance, okay, this is a technology that might become dangerous in the future. Let's think about how to regulate it now before it, it's as dangerous as, as we feared might become. How, how, how would you rate our, our track record here of, of trying, to, trying to think something through in advance and regulate it? Oh, what's our track record across technologies? That's an interesting question. Well, there's something called the Colling, Colling Ridge Dilemma. Uh, I always forget if it's a ridge or a wood, but it's a ridge. A Colling Ridge Dilemma. Um, which says that time when you are able to effectively regulate is early on in a technology's life cycle, but the time when you actually know what regulation would be good, you know, that comes only later. And um, actually, he, he thought that there was just simply no way to know what the right regulations would be early on, so he, he thought we had to deal with it uh, some other way. But I think that what we're realizing now is that um, given the extraordinarily increasing capabilities of technology, we have no choice but to do anticipatory regulation because it could end up being the case that the next version of whatever technology has such an impact that um, that we just, if we didn't prepare for it, we you know that we'd be derelict. So I think uh, you're absolutely right that um, that that we need to do that. Now, did we <laughs> did we have do we have a good track record? Um, no, no, not really uh, such a great track record of, um, of thinking about technological regulation uh, in advance. Yeah, so I think on the, in the case of civilian technology governance, we have lots of examples of success stories, you know, including for powerful technologies, uh, airplanes and, and boats and lots of other things are very powerful technologies and, and we managed to, to regulate them. On the other hand, on the, on the arms control side, when we think about um, nuclear and biotechnologies, I would say we haven't really been that successful. The nuclear analogy is an interesting one. You know, there was an attempt, of course, the Atchison-Lilienthal plan and, and then the uh, Baruch uh, plan. There was an attempt to really internationalize the technology and, in fact, to, to create a sort of international monopoly over uh, nuclear, the nuclear industry, the entire nuclear industry. And of course, that, that didn't succeed. And there's a question about whether it would have been a good thing if it had succeeded. Um, but, but that sort of anticipatory governance uh, wasn't su particularly successful uh, in that case. 
or we might think about um, the Biological Weapons Convention. I mean, that's an interesting one, uh, which I think really shows us how difficult arms control is uh, in, in some ways, uh, paradoxically, uh, because you know, the Biological Weapons Convention is a case where you know, many countries in the world came together and prevented and signed a treaty in which they agreed not to develop, not to stockpile, not to use this technology. But they didn't have any verification means. They didn't worry about that, really. And it turns out that there were violations, and not just little violations, but huge violations of uh, this uh, convention. Uh, and the Soviet Union uh, had tens of thousands of people working on biological weapons. So I think that these sorts of agreements, in many cases, they have done some important things. The Biological Weapons Convention probably made it harder for actors around the world to develop biological weapons. It probably had, therefore, a non-proliferation effect. But it didn't do the letter of what it set out to do, which was prevent any actor in the world from developing these sorts of weapons. So this question about the track record that we have, I think, is a, is a fascinating one. I would say we have some success stories. We, do, we have fewer success stories about anticipatory governance. In the case of um, regulating military, one of the interesting things is that, in a way, we're successful about being anticipatory in a, in a limited way. You know, If you think about the Space Treaty or the ABM Treaty, for instance, these were things that were regulating technologies before they really existed. But the very fact that they were anticipatory in this sense is perhaps what allowed the treaties to happen in the first place. And in, for instance, in the case of ABM, you might say that as the, it looked more and more like the technology was becoming real, the treaty, of course, um, went away. Uh, so... I'm not sure we can quite count that as a success of anticipatory regulation. So maybe we could have gotten countries to sign on AI regulation in 1960, for example, because there would have been no perceived cost to doing so. Exactly. But, but then would it have done any good? Because then once the technology evolved such that it was meaningful, uh, they may have dropped out. Yeah, I think there's some other examples of that. And, and I think it's an important uh, caveat when we're counting sort of successes and failures of attempts to regulate technology. We talked about incentives before, and I think we should touch upon some of the potential negative incentives of international uh, regulation. So one thing I thought about was whether just rumors of international regulation could incentivize uh, countries or companies within countries to be less transparent about what they're developing. So would it be the case that they publish less and they they don't announce their, their breakthroughs because, well, if, if they don't announce anything that's, that seems powerful, then they might be able to delay regulation. Do you think that's plausible and that's, that's uh, this potential downside? Yeah, so I think those are exactly the right worries to have on the one hand. And I think we have examples of that from other industries. Um, so 
two that I that I really like are, uh, or I don't know that I like them, but I think they're very interesting and, and telling from the oil industry and the tobacco industry, uh, because in these cases, you had the potential for liability and firms knew that maybe they could be liable for some of the things that they were doing. And so in some cases, that meant that their view was, well, better not to know if there are negative consequences to what, what we're doing. And they actually you know, fire people as a result. They, they try to make sure that they don't uh, have the ability to, to know things. Um, and I think that is a, is a real danger. Uh, there may even have been some cases of that already in the AI industry. I mean, it's speculative um, and I don't want to name names, but I think that there is at least one case where it sort of really looked that way. <laughs> so, uh, so I think, I think regulation can do harm. Uh, that is a danger. Some of the other specific dangers that you mentioned, like driving activity somewhere else, are exactly the sort of thing that I think countries will be wary of uh, and have been wary of. On the other hand, this is also an argument for international regulation, right? It's precisely a case where you're worried about regulatory standards uh, having a so-called race to the bottom, or maybe a race, maybe it doesn't get all the way to the bottom, but it, it goes down anyway, and there's kind of corner cutting all around. And that is the kind of thing that you want to prevent with an international international standard. And that's exactly what inter international standards can do sometimes, right? Because the actors are, they none of the actors necessarily want to regulate themselves to the degree that that is optimal, but they're willing to regulate themselves because they get out of the bargain that everybody else gets regulated too, and they really are happy with that. So, um, so I do think that these things are a worry and what we have to be thinking about, but they're also the reason why we need to do it. Let's talk a bit about the security dilemma and, and AI. Perhaps let's you could start by explaining what the security dilemma is. I'm, I'm particularly interested in how it, how it um, applies to the situation between China and the US. Yeah, so the security dilemma is a case where uh, actions taken by one actor to make itself more safe are making other actors less safe. And um, absolutely, I think we, we see that in the case of AI. One of the interesting things with AI is that it's maybe harder to see the actions that other actors are or are not taking. Um, that is say development is uh, maybe even harder to see than it is in other areas. And so in some ways, you know, you might not have the kind of spirals where one actor says, oh, I see what you're doing. The other actor says, oh yeah, I see what you're doing too. And they kind of ratchet up. But on the other hand, uh, they can have a kind of spiral in the mind, if you will. They have an, they have an idea about uh, what others are doing. There's actually some attempts to, to model this formally. Uh, there was um, uh, Stuart Armstrong and, uh, and some others uh, thought about this with their racing to the precipice paper. And then there have been some recent papers that, that I've been involved with, um, including one by Nicholas Emery Shue that thinks about exactly these kinds of issues. Um, is it better for the actors to know what each other are doing or to not know and be able to guess? And, um, and well, the somewhat uh, less dramatic answer is that it depends. It's not, it's not always good to know. It's not always good, um, good not to know uh, in expectation. Yeah, just to take an, a non-AI example of the security dilemma, uh, we could talk about the situation surrounding Taiwan where 
one account is that the U.S. is is trying to encircle uh, and 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 arm various islands uh, surrounding Taiwan, and China perceives this as a as a threat to their security. Then they respond by beefing up security, which the the U.S. perceives as an aggression, and so on. And that is that is kind of the spiraling down uh, uh, dynamics of the security uh, dilemma. And and the question is then whether AI as a technology changes this dilemma. Is it as as you mentioned, uh, AI is less less obviously visible. You you can't necessarily see it with satellite technology. It seems it seems to me that it would be better if China wasn't so worried about what the U.S. was doing with AI, and the reverse would also be the case. It's that the U.S. wasn't so worried about how China was uh, was doing with with AI progress. I think it would be much better if they weren't worried. And there's a question about how to make them not worried. And sometimes having information makes you more worried, and sometimes it makes you makes you less worried. One thing that information pretty much always does is allow for agreements because information is something that you can condition on. And so, for instance, if you know what the other side is doing, you can say, okay, well, we won't do it either if if you don't do it. And that can lead to to an agreement as long as doing that thing isn't, um, neither side has such an incentive to do it in the short term. Then you can have these kinds of punishment strategies through, through agreements. And so in that sense, information is good but um but in in other senses if they know exactly what each other are doing and maybe they then realize that okay we're really uh close in some dimension that we're being just a little bit ahead is important so those are the kind of cases where very often although not always uh having more information uh can be can be bad because that then allows them to engage in these really um really sort of negative outcome races where they're competing over very fine leads uh, that they that they each uh, might have or seek to have. Yeah, so the U.S. and Taiwan is a good example of a security dilemma potentially because, for instance, the U.S. could support Taiwan and its support, and the more clear its support is, the more threatening that might be to Chinese interests. And in fact, that might even precipitate a conflict. That is, if the U.S. were to come and say that it was giving absolutely its full support behind Taiwanese independence, that might actually precipitate a conflict, which, uh, you know, there are funny dynamics here where doing that on the, by, by the U.S. could be credible precisely because it's precipitating a conflict, potentially. But on the other hand, you might not want to precipitate a conflict. Yeah, so the sides have this this kind of dilemma, which is why we call it a, a security dilemma, uh, in terms of uh, doing things that seem to make them more secure, but might ratchet up the conflict. And I think uh, Taiwan is a place where where we see that. And maybe you've brought it up because it's also a place that is so critical to AI supply chains. And why is it that it's so critical to AI supply chains? Well, in terms of the high-end chips, the fabricators are mostly based in Taiwan. So I think uh, upwards of 90% of the um, cutting edge AI chips are actually coming from Taiwan, this nationalist target of uh, the, the Chinese government. Maybe uh, the most important and certainly one of the most important goals uh, of the uh, Chinese Communist Party is reunification with Taiwan. So uh, throwing all of this uh, into the AI mix. 
yeah, if you wanted to set up the world for conflict, you couldn't have done much better than to put a lot of very valuable chip production on, on Taiwan, I think. Yes, I think that's right. As if we, as if there wasn't uh, enough reason to have conflict over Taiwan already, and we in, in fact have had conflicts over Taiwan already, it seems like in the future, uh, the some part of the balance of power in the world could be related to activities on Taiwan. And so yet another reason potentially for conflict there. So if we talk about the security dilemma from the perspective of, of AI, um, and, and if you allow me to, to speculate a, a little bit here, is it at all plausible that uh, countries might begin hiding their AI capabilities potentially so that they can, they can use their advanced AI to develop even more advanced AI and, and gain a kind of a decisive strategic advantage over, over another country? Is it plausible that they will hide what could amount to military capabilities? Yes, yes, of course. Of course, they, they've always tried to hide those things. And you know, when we think back to projects like the Manhattan Project, uh, they have tried to hide and, and we should expect them uh, to continue to, to try to hide those things. And some really large scale projects are hard to hide uh, but actually, in this area, there's probably quite a lot that can be done uh, without it being at least easy to detect, although you can be sure that intelligence services are working on detecting it. And so it wouldn't be a situation like the the, the space race in, in the Cold War, where you had superpowers trying to, to showcase their, their abilities and their power. I could see it going both ways, in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they, they'll want to showcase certain things, uh, absolutely. And, and sometimes they will feel like they have a kind of social status interest in showcasing, uh, as in Sputnik, you know, look at this, this thing, we can launch it right over your head. Uh, so there's no doubt that, um, that sometimes uh, they will contemplate doing that. But there's also the, the other incentives. And I think it's, it's hard to know which of those incentives will win out in particular cases. That's a fascinating social science question, Gus. I think it's very interesting. Any graduate students out there who would like to investigate that, I, I think it would be a great question. We should chat. Yeah, okay. You can. <laughs> I'll put your, your email in the, in the description and people can contact you if they're interested. Okay, you have a, a chapter in a, in a forthcoming textbook uh, where you sketch out four kind of crucial considerations surrounding AI governance. And I think it will be fruitful for, for us to, to kind of run through them and, and, and get your thoughts. The first of your questions that you actually mentioned previously is whether AI can defend against uh, other AI. So, so is, is AI able to protect you from, from the enemy's AI, in a sense? Can, can one country use their AI to protect themselves from, from another country's AI? This is related to kind of a defense, uh, offense, balance, and so on. So maybe you could explain that concept also. Well, so I haven't, um, I haven't seen the, the Oppenheimer movie yet. Uh, oddly, I keep being prevented. I, I'm sure I'll see it soon. Um, but I understand uh, there's a scene, which is, which is also one that I think people are familiar with from the historical record, where Oppenheimer is testifying before a committee, and he is asked in the early days of, uh, of the nuclear period, he's asked, what is the technological solution to prevent somebody from smuggling a bomb into New York Harbor in a crate? And his answer is a screwdriver. 
which is say there isn't a technical solution to that problem. We need a, a social solution. Yeah, so can technological developments defend us from technology? Well, sometimes they can, but sometimes it seems like they, they probably can't. Right. So, and this gets to lots of interesting questions about, for instance, open sourcing. So we can ask ourselves, you know, uh, would open sourcing some of AI technology be helpful or harmful? And the answer is probably both to some degree, but how does it net out? And there are areas where we have open source. And in fact, in the cyber area, there are some things that have been open source that have been worked on by whole communities of people who have made them more, made those systems more robust, uh, and that's been effective. But uh, if we were to open source, um, you know, nuclear weapons uh, ideas uh, or the science behind it, um, would that actually then lead to defenses against nuclear weapons? I think we can be skeptical there. So sometimes it does, and and sometimes uh, sometimes it doesn't. You mentioned, I guess I should say, the offense-defense balance is um, this idea, well, it, actually, it's quite fraught exactly how you define it. But um, it may be that when countries are fighting, sort of being on the offense is advantaged. And so sort of being the first mover is advantaged. Or it may be that the reverse is true, that it's good to sort of wait for the uh, adversary to come to you or something like that. And so um, that's a strategic parameter, which is, is going to affect the incentives that countries have to get into conflicts uh, in the in the age of AI uh, potentially uh, as as well. Do you think it makes sense to talk about weapons having specific balances between their defensive and offensive capabilities? So perhaps we we could claim that nuclear weapons are more offensive, are, are better at offense than they are at defense, for example. Uh, it's funny because people often say the opposite about nuclear weapons, that uh, that actually, even though it seems like, as you say, they're better at offense, in fact, uh, the result of them is that you have mutually assured destruction, and so they lead to this defense-dominant uh, sort of world. So I, I do think that that points out that these things are, in, in some sense, hard to be rigorous about, or at least you know, people haven't come up with the way of of sort of ex-ante uh, thinking about a weapon system and, and really effectively coding whether it is offense or defense dominant. On the other hand, I, I think it's kind of a useful idea that helps us to, to think about what sort of world uh, we're likely to be living in. So for instance, you might think that a world that's more offense dominant uh, in the past uh, has led to kind of consolidation and sort of larger state spaces, internal spaces, precisely because there's been conflict, those conflicts have happened, they've been resolved in favor of one side or the other, that's led to a larger state. And then there's kind of a, a peace within that state, uh, which in some cases uh, might be more beneficial. On the other hand, people are, of course, also pointing out that um, having offense dominant technologies may uh, lead to more conflict, and, and that's, and that's on, the, on the negative side. So um, yeah, so I think I think it's a you know it's sort of a contested and fraught area. It's it's one that within uh, the social sciences was much more active uh, some decades ago, uh, not not um, that active these days. But I think it's uh, it's still sort of interesting to think about. And I think productive and fruitful.
you dare to make any best guesses about what we really want to know, which is how, you know, is, is AI as a whole more, uh, does it lend itself better to offense than to defense, for example? The first thing to say is that we don't know. We don't know exactly uh, how this is going to go and how the technology is going to develop. But if I had to guess, I would say, so the question is, can AI defend us against AI? I would say very speculatively, um, not without really interfering with privacy. So probably, unless we're willing to change some societal parameters, like how invasive the state is in our lives, at a guess, we, we actually won't be able to use AI without doing that we won't be able to use AI to defend against the sorts of offense dominant things that AI will enable. But as I say, it's really hard to say for sure, or with any certainty at all. And here you might be thinking of, for example, continually scanning what software is running on, on people's computers to prevent them from running uh, dangerous uh, AI. Exactly, scanning what, what everybody's doing Maybe at some point in the future, what everybody's thinking, you know, all these things. So without without becoming uh, very invasive, uh, verging on totalitarian, we can't really... AI is, is offense uh, dominant, you would say. No, I, I wouldn't put it that strongly. I, I think you know, th this is very, very speculative. Uh, and I, I think that that's uh, a sort of a guess, but I, I wouldn't put a lot of credence in that particular guess. Maybe we could move on to the next, uh, your next kind of crucial question. And this, this one is a bit complex. It's, it's about thinking about the failure rate of a technology, in this case, AI, uh, relative to, to kind of the risk of that uh, technology. And here we're, we're thinking about uh, international agreements. So perhaps a starting point is to talk about the downsides of having a say an international treaty that allow that does not allow countries to have any failures with the technology so just imagine that that you uh yeah what are the downsides of presenting a, a document like that and, and trying to get people to sign it yeah i think one way to to get a handle on this is is maybe to think about again to think about the nuclear analogy and to think about two different cases so you know one of the things that we have are or have had our agreements on the number of deployed nuclear nuclear weapons that uh, the U.S. and Russia can can have, and at some point it was four thousand, and then it went to fifteen fifty. So that so that's an agreement. And then a the question is, well, what would the world look like? How different would it be if one of the sides were to cheat on this agreement? You know, suppose one side built an extra ten nuclear weapons. Would that change the balance of power? No, not very much. Right? Not very much. We, the sides have supposedly secure second strike. And so building a few more nuclear weapons uh, isn't really fundamentally changing strategic parameters, probably. Now, contrast that case to the case where we have an, a worldwide, worldwide agreement to ban nuclear weapons. So if there are zero nuclear weapons, and people have taken that idea seriously, there's been a lot of thinking about exactly what a regime would look like to get to zero nuclear weapons, and they concentrate on you know, preventing any individual state from breaking out, so-called, and developing a weapon. What could you do in order to prevent it? 
uh, do something before they before they're actually able to do it. Obviously, if you're in the world of zero nuclear weapons, one state managing to build a few probably has a huge effect on the balance of power. So the sort of agreement that you would need to design in that kind of a world is very different from the sort of agreement that you need to design in the world that we have, where it's an agreement just to limit to 1,550 deployed nuclear weapons. And so that's the point, that um, in some cases, you know, we, we just can't really accept even a single failure. And in other cases, if the agreement failed to some degree, it wouldn't be such a big deal. And how we would design institutions for the one case or the other case is really very different. Yeah, do you think we can allow failures with AI? I think it depends. I mean, it depends on the, the use case and the sort of risk. And I think in a lot of cases, absolutely. Uh, you know, we can, we can allow a certain degree of failure because there are trade-offs, right? So, you know, we shouldn't give up privacy rights to prevent misuse of privacy rights, for instance. That would be particularly silly. So I think there are areas where we can accept a certain failure rate, but I think there are some areas uh, too where we, where we get into the catastrophic risk areas where probably we want the failure rate to be very, 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 very low. And I think that involves a, a different sort of agreement. Yeah, we can talk about different stakes for, say, an, a recommendation algorithm versus on the, that's on the one hand, and then potentially an, an agentic uh, super intelligent system uh, way on the other hand, where some people would claim that, that with the with the smarter than human agentic system, we, we, we might uh, we might not be able to allow any failure rate. Do, do you think do you think we can succeed in, in building um, agreements and, and regulations? that involve no possibility of failure for, for, for each of the states? It just depends. I mean, I don't think we know all the strategic parameters. Um, so uh, if we're in a world where, you know, an answer to the, the first question that we talked about is that AI just can't defend against other dangerous AI, uh, right? Just can't do it. That's one of the things that could suggest you really need to have uh, kind of a zero failure rate, for instance. Um, and then can you actually do that? It's extremely difficult. I think, you know, again, it depends on other, you know, the sort of plausibility of it depends on the answer to some other questions. So if it turns out, for instance, that the things that give states, let's say, military advantage are the same things or involve taking on more risk of misaligned AI, for instance. So in other words, if risk-taking and augmenting power are throughout the course of technological development are always kind of wedded together, then that is not a very safe world and will make it very hard to get an agreement of the sort that, that we would need uh, in that context. And we haven't really faced that before, right? Because with nuclear weapons, you know, again, uh, closely related to the point we were making a moment ago, with nuclear weapons, there's decreasing marginal returns probably of building another nuclear weapon. So at some point, you know, you, you, you can blow up the world. I mean, people who study nuclear politics would be upset at me for putting it in kind of such a cavalier way, but 
let's just put it in the way that you know makes sense, intuitive sense to all of us. If you can blow up the world three times, then being able to blow it up again, you know, once or twice, it's it's not doesn't really change things that much. So you have less incentive once you have secure second strike at any rate to to continue to to invest in the technology. But it may not be like that with AI because it might be the case that at each point, you know, you can you can have very significant new capabilities if you continue to invest in the technology. And so you have continual incentive to do that. And if, in addition to that continual incentive to invest in the technology, that's a continual incentive to take uh, extreme risks, of course, that's a really bad world. And then if it turns out, in addition, that we really need to have an, an agreement that has a zero failure rate in that world, because the technology can't defend against itself, well, that you know that that's not good. But maybe maybe uh, maybe if we can settle this question, we can move on to the next one, which is uh, about verification. So we're talking about uh, which agreements uh, governments could make, and a, a crucial factor there is what one government can verify about the actions uh, or the behaviors of of the other government. What options do we have available for verifying whether states are complying with an agreement? Perhaps we could we could talk about the nuclear case and then maybe the the AI case. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, in the in the nuclear case, you know, as we've already said, when it comes to weapons actually being used or even tested, now we have a technology that is really quite reliable in in detecting that. And again, this is a case where because we have that information we can have an agreement in which we condition on that information and that can be very helpful. And that is what facilitates things like mutually assured destruction, uh, which supposedly is, is stabilizing and at least seems to have helped us uh, get through and, and survive when, of course, we should remember at the beginning of the nuclear period, many, many people thought that humanity would not survive. Bertrand Russell wrote a book. Uh, the title of the book was uh, Will Man Survive? Um, and I think his his probable answer was was no at that time. Ver the ability to verify, to have the information that an adversary is actually complying with an agreement can be extremely important. And this is also a technical challenge. It was a technical challenge when it comes to detecting nuclear tests. And it's a and it's a technical challenge today when it comes to detecting what what other actors are doing with Uh, AI technologies. and But it's not exclusively a technical matter because it may be that you need to put some things in place in an agreement in order to facilitate verification. So for instance, in the Open Skies Treaty, that, that's a treaty where the sides are, are allowing overflights in order to see, in fact, what each other are doing. And they use what's called national technical means in order to do that. On the other hand, there's some agreements about what can be covered up and what can't be covered up in order to facilitate using national technical means. So, yeah, so I think, you know, we we need to sort of uh, have a, a, a unified uh, technical and social strategy here. Um, and, we, and we don't actually know what sorts of verification techniques we're going to be able to develop uh, in this area and what they will require and how invasive the technical procedures will be uh, that go along with with these techniques. But that kind of question, because countries don't like revealing what they're doing in their national security establishments. So they're very unwilling to do that. So if it requires really invasive techniques 
to verify what another side is doing, uh, that's a problem. I'll just say one thing because maybe it, it to me it's a it's a hopeful point. It's a point that that others have made. But you know what what we need in a way is something like a dog, because when a dog is sniffing a, a bag at an airport, it's able to detect. Okay, is this a dangerous thing? But the nice thing about the dog is that it doesn't give you other information. It just tells you this one thing: dangerous, not dangerous. But it doesn't tell you if the person is going to Florida or is uh, cheating on their spouse or, or anything like that. And so that's exactly what we need. We need to build that kind of sophisticated, but not too sophisticated and giving us more information than, than we actually want so that it's acceptable to these national security establishments. Yeah, okay, I, I get that. So, so <laughs> do you have any idea how, how a dog might work? In, uh, in, uh, how, how could we make a technical dog that tells us exactly what, what AI is, uh, is doing, but, but uh, on, in, the, in, the, in the enemy's uh, companies, but, but no more? Is, is, there anything, is there anything promising on the technical side there? Yeah, that's a great question, a difficult question. And the first thing I'll say is that there probably are some others. I hope there are some others uh, who, who can give a better answer to it than, than I can. Uh, maybe the first thing to say is that uh, probably we can have uh, some hardware mechanisms on chips, uh, which uh, allow us to monitor exactly how those chips are being used. At a guess, those sorts of techniques will have to be combined with data governance of some sort, because when training, for instance, is started on, on chips, you might be asking yourself, well, how much compute is embodied in this training run? But that's actually hard to say if, unless you know something about the sort of starting point of the, of the training run, which in part related to the, the data that's being used. So most likely, I think we're going to need to have both a sort of data governance and some hardware mechanisms in order to make these ideas really work. People have started to flesh out what a general scheme could look like, but I think there are many technical challenges that remain. I don't think we have or are really close to having uh, technical solutions that we might, might need for this. Also, just one thing that seems to make it uh, inherently difficult is, is just you can't really prove a negative. It, it's difficult to prove that you that you don't have additional computing hardware or additional uh, nuclear warheads. And so that's, that's, that's always the, like the, the challenge that's, that's looming as I see it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the nuclear area, you know, often there are agreements and, and also the chemical weapons area, uh, there are agreements uh, to search declared sites. But what about the rest of the space in the country? Obviously other things could be happening there and, and yet countries have not been willing to make everything in their in their country available to to search and examination, and so there's this kind of tension there, uh, and whether we can have detection techniques that are sufficient so that they're willing to really trust that their adversaries aren't violating conventions, uh, but on the other hand, don't give uh, adversaries so much information that they are simply not willing to enter into the agreement in the first place. I think that's the very severe technical challenge that we face for mil on the military side of governing AI between the major powers. So as I say, 
that's really hard. We have lots of opportunity to govern when it comes to uh, relations between uh, other powers um, that are really part of the security environment that are created by the major powers and also the whole civilian space where I think also there are a lot of risks that we need to deal with. Yeah, maybe maybe this uh, flows nicely into your your fourth uh, crucial question, which is whether uh, whether it's the case that a, a small club of aligned states can control the inputs into the technology, in this case, AI. So we're talking about whether, say, the US and its allies can control the supply chain of, of computing hardware and potentially also algorithms and, and data. What do you think is the answer to this question as it, as it, as it stands right now? <laughs> well, I listed this as a question that we didn't know the answer to, so <laughs> it's hard to, to answer it. But, um, but I, I would just say that, you know, I, I think we, we do know that the supply chain is narrow and uh, that a small club of aligned states can do quite a bit when it comes to when it comes to controlling access to the latest uh, computing technologies. So, so that much, I think we have a pretty good idea of. What we don't know is how long will that be the case? We don't really know yet because we haven't seen specific regulation uh, to deal with cloud computing. So we don't know how well those things are going to work. And we don't know what risks uh, are associated with existing compute and non-frontier compute, or perhaps you know one generation old uh, compute, something like that. So that's what we really don't know the answer to. I think many people are really hopeful that the scaling hypothesis will will hold, and that it will turn out that um, that really advanced forms of AI need absolutely enormous amounts of compute, so enormous that controlling just the cutting edge is sufficient. You know, people have different intuitions about this. Uh, some people have, you know, more uh, finely cal calibrated intuitions than than I do, but that's just not my <laughs> intuition. I don't believe it. I think that. Uh, older generations of, of compute, you know, if you're really willing to maybe spend a little bit more, take a little bit more time in order to, to keep up, uh, that, you know, yes, it will require some technical solutions. Yes, interconnect speeds are a big deal. But nevertheless, if you're talking about really motivated actors, you know, China likes to talk about two bombs and a satellite. That is, in spite of all the restrictions from the West on developing a nuclear weapon and a thermonuclear weapon and a satellite, it developed two bombs and a satellite. So I'm not sure it will be, you know, people are skeptical, many people are skeptical about recreating a chip supply chain um, or another chip supply chain in uh, kind of the medium term. And they may be well, well be right about that. But on the other hand, using existing uh, compute and doing some mod some technical modification in order to make that existing compute work, you know. Again, I don't know, but intuitively, it seems to me like like that's uh, a source of risk. Yeah, there's a question here of how quickly you can you can get from say the the cutting edge system, say the cutting edge system in in 2022. Can you train such a system on much cheaper hardware uh, in 2032, for example? And if that's the case, then if we believe that that today's systems are on the verge of becoming dangerous, well, then it seems that the, that we we can't really 
control the 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 necessary ingredients for AI for for a long time because at, at a certain point with enough advance in computing hardware and so on uh, training these systems will be available potentially even to individuals you you can get different estimates of this but I I don't think it's it's uh, it's a bad estimate to to think that within ten years you would be able to train a system like GPT four uh, on a uh, on something that's available to to a rich individual. Exactly, and yet it also comes back to this first question that we had: Can we actually use advanced technology to to defend us against these other advances in, in technology? And if we can, so if it turns out that you know whatever dangerous thing you can do on your laptop can be well defended against by the thing that the, that the latest supercomputer can do in 10 years, well, that's like a much safer world, but we just don't know if that's going to be the case. Do, you, do we have any? So I know you, you mentioned this as an, as an open question, but do you have any leanings? Do, you have any, do we have any indications from the world about how this might turn out? Which world do you think we are in? I mean, again, you know, it's so much speculation. I, I sort of go back to, you know, I think that technologies are going to become uh, so, so capable that, you know, if we just kind of project forward the world of today with all the freedoms that we have today and, and, and all the access to, to the information that we have today, if we just project forward that world, but we say that algorithmic progress uh, has happened for, for 10 years, something like that, then I think probably, you know, individuals in that world will be able to do some things that we will find hard to defend against uh, in, in that world. And, and so, you know, at a guess, I think we're going to have to make some choices about what individuals have access to and, and the ways that they can, can be monitored. But I'm still hopeful that we can do things like create the dog that we were talking about before, that we monitor for certain things, but a whole range of other things we, we don't monitor for uh, at all. But I think that this is going to occasion all sorts of broad societal conversations. Yeah, one thing we talked about earlier was this question of, of hacking um, and cybersecurity at the, at the top companies. Um, and this is interesting in, in this context also, because even if we have the treaties and we have the verification system, and we know that, for example, no training runs larger than X are, are occurring outside of, uh, of, of these companies, you could imagine rogue groups or rogue states uh, hacking into top companies and, and simply stealing the model. When you've, when you've trained the model, it, it doesn't take up uh, that much space, and it's... Uh, Current labs or current companies do not have uh, military-grade security yet. And so this is, seems like a live opportunity that, that we might see leaks or hacks uh, getting these, these models out there available in the world. Does this, does this undermine all of this talk of the treaties and agreements and verification that we've talked about? It's a great question. Um, I guess four, four points to make. Uh, the first is that you know, I think you hear this view in, in D.C. Uh, where some tech companies have said that they don't want to work on military-grade things or they don't want to work with militaries, things like that. And, and the view of some in the national security establishment is, well, actually what they're doing is working with China and everybody else, but not working with the U.S. government because their systems are compromised and, and, and they're hacked by these other governments, but, but maybe not by the U.S. government, or at least that's the and that's the perception that that people have uh and so um yeah and so and so why and so is that really the right thing so I, I, you know without a doubt 
there is a need for military grade, uh, as you have said, uh, cybersecurity. And even if you have it, it's just not clear that it really works in the end, that, that these systems can't be stolen. So I think two, two points. Um, so one, maybe just a tiny bit of a, of a tangent, but uh, you know, you've been asking about intuition. So here, here's another intuition for you. I, I think that we're coming back, we're going to be coming back uh, to uh, a world where some of the advanced systems are really gonna be using more inference compute. So, so it'll still be a tiny fraction of overall training compute, but, but, it, but it, it will, uh, there will be a sort of another bottleneck when it comes to inference compute. And I think uh, the chain of thought reasoning is, is probably an example of that. And, and you know, we were talking earlier about how we don't really know how, how systems work, but probably we can build things on, on top of current systems that kind of make them, if you will, think harder. Um, there used to be with Mathematica, there was a way you could say simplify, and then you could say another command was simplify harder. It was I always love that, like you were just telling it, think harder, you know, work work a little more. <laughs> yeah, and you can uh, and you can do this with current language models too. So you might say uh, think step by step through this problem, and 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 your your uh, argument here or your conclusion from this would be that these systems would begin using more compute when they're running, when they're actually solving our problems because of that. Yeah, I, I think that's right, and and really the, the 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 reason I draw that conclusion is is less these sorts of speculative things, although I think that's that's likely, um, and more sort of what we're seeing in the strategic space because uh, the branching factor in in any um, sort of significantly complicated social situation is such that just doing all the training in advance uh, for for this strategic situation isn't very effective, and we see that in Go, you know the the most advanced Go playing systems don't do that well unless they're kind of thinking about, okay, what is the strategic situation on the board right now? What does that look like a few moves ahead? Now, that's not enough. That, that was enough for chess because chess had this really simple heuristic for understanding, okay, how good is the state of the board for me at, at any uh, point in time? But so you, you need this, these other uh, diffuse uh, approaches to, to AI uh, that have been so incredibly successful for figuring out, well, is this a reasonably good state for me or is this not a reasonably good state for me for something as complex as Go? On the other hand, you also need these compute intensive things, that is inference compute intensive things, uh, to, to think about, okay, what is the strategic situation in this particular context uh, that, that some of these folks refer to as, as search? And so I think, um, you know, it seems to me both a sort of based on kind of loose theory, if you will, in my case, and, and sort of some empirical evidence, I should say, from these strategic systems that are being developed in more complex multiplayer, non-zero-sum environments, uh, that in fact, uh, we're going to, in order to really be more effective in those environments, we're going to need more inference compute. So I think, again, you know, this gets back to the question of what can you do just with just by stealing a system and having it on your PC or something like that. I think we're going to be in a world where in order to uh, be most effective in strategic contexts, we need more inference compute. Again, it's not really my, my direct area of expertise. I mean, I, uh, game theory has been a longtime interest of mine, but on the compute side, I think it's more speculative, but that's the way it seems to me. Okay. So there's a little bit of a digression, but now I want to get back to your specific question, which I actually think sort of um, I probably would answer in, in sort of the opposite way uh, from, from what you had suggested. Um, so do we need 
international governance, given that these systems can be stolen, I would say, yes, we, we need it precisely because the systems can be stolen in some sense, because we need to worry also about the development stage. You know, if the systems can be stolen and, if the, and then they can be easily used, if that's true, well, then we need to also have things like licensing back at the development stage. And uh, if we're going to do that internationally, that means some sort of international regime to, to make that happen. Um, I don't, I don't um, you know, I guess the, the point about copying, you know, it sort of leads me in the opposite direction, that we need more and at earlier stages of the uh, technology lifecycle. Might this be easier to implement uh, as an agreement between states? It seems that, that each state would be interested in, in the companies in that state uh, having excellent uh, cybersecurity. Because then, then they're they're kind of very important and valuable, perhaps even militarily valuable uh, secrets wouldn't be stolen. So it it just intuitively it seems like it would be something that would be easier to sign up for uh, for states. Absolutely, I think um, I think cybersecurity you would think uh, would be something they could sign up for. I think it's possible that there's some trade-offs in terms of uh, you know effectiveness in the company. So I think in some cases, you know, really significant cybersecurity has cost to people who are working in the company. You know, they have to suddenly start doing things in secure rooms and all sorts of things. I mean, you know, a friend of mine who's working at the defense department, he he has a really hard time picking up his kids after school because he tends to work late. And if he picks up his kids, that means he has to leave the secure environment and go back to the secure environment. And that takes a lot of time. And um, and the result is that it's hard to pick up your kids. So there are very practical uh, things that go along with with these sorts of security measures. But I agree with you that from the point of view of, of a state, uh, these things might be uh, desirable. Okay, I, I think we should talk about, so we've been talking about various problems and various opportunities for, for how we might regulate AI. And I think we should get to your more specific proposal for how we might do this, which, which you've kind of sketched out in, in, in three parts, uh, which consists of an international body that's, that sets standards for, for AI. And then this... Uh, jurisdictional certification body, which you, you might explain what that means, uh, and then an implementation using kind of national or, or domestic laws. Potentially, you could, you could talk about how the system might work and, and what the advantages of, of setting up AI governance like this would be. Great. Uh, this is, relates to a white paper that I've been working on and, and with, with a, a whole host of other folks. I think 12 people are on the paper, so, so credit uh, certainly to, to many others. Yeah, so uh, uh, we what we do in this paper is sketch out an approach to international civilian AI governance. And as as I think we've sort of now covered, we think that civilian governance is maybe there just is more potential in the near term for, for doing things there. Um, but even though we're talking about civilian governance, there's still a, a security aspect to things. So one thing you might ask yourself is, is the security apparatus in the United States going to allow an international organization to enter the offices of OpenAI and see everything they're doing and how they're training things. And even if they did, would you actually want that because of the proliferation implications? I mean, the IAEA is sort of conventionally believed to have all sorts of spies in it, for instance. Um, not that it gets to go into the national security establishments of the club of nuclear powers, but it, it goes into everybody else's, uh, what they're doing uh, in the nuclear area. So. You know, so that was one of the sort of motivational ideas for the framework that, that we developed. We, we thought probably the answer was no, 
it wouldn't be allowed. You wouldn't actually want it. So what else could we do in order to regulate civilian AI? And so we're interested in something that we think is kind of similar to some of the other regimes that are out there. For instance, International Civilian Aviation Organization, the International Maritime Organization, and Financial Activities Task Force are the, are the three that we look at primarily, but I think in, in some other areas too. And what all three of these have in common is that they are not auditing firms within countries. They are auditing jurisdictions to see if those jurisdictions have the appropriate regulation, and in some cases, to see if they're actually enforcing the right regulation. And so that's the approach that we've also taken here, and, and we call it jurisdictional certification. And so the idea, so our sort of suggestion is that you have an international organization that has talked to everybody, all of the other standards organizations, domestic standards organizations, and, and experts around the world, and has consensed on a kind of minimal set of international standards that, that globally we think should be applied everywhere. And that, again, that's not every standard, right? We, jurisdictions should um, be able to have different laws on lots and lots of things um, when it comes to regulating AI. But once they've agreed on a, on a minimal set of standards, uh, they can uh, audit the jurisdictions to see if they're actually putting those into law and are effective at making those standards a reality in terms of outcomes. And so any international regime needs some, some teeth and you might say some reasons for, for compliance. And our idea is, well, we could tie this certification to the trade regime in two ways, both in terms of imports and in terms of exports. Uh, and this relates a little bit to what's done in some of these other areas. So, you know, in the case of AI, what you might say is, uh, so countries around the world might say, well, we're not going to import any AI technology that uses uh, AI from a jurisdiction that doesn't have certification from this international standard setting organization. I think that would provide really quite a strong incentive for uh, for firms within those jurisdictions to pressure their own jurisdictions to uh, to adopt uh, the international standards, and that's exactly what we see. For instance, the the effect of the Financial Action Task Force appears to be um, that when it puts a jurisdiction, so it actually has what's called a black and a gray list, and when it puts a a jurisdiction on one of those lists, it tends to raise costs for financial institutions within that jurisdiction, and they in turn put pressure on uh, their own jurisdictions to, to get off those lists. So you can imagine something similar happening. Or similarly, in the case of, um, of ICAO, the International Civilian Aviation Organization, the FAA in the United States has the ability to prevent flights entering U.S. airspace from any jurisdiction that doesn't, that is in violation of ICAO rules and standards. So again, um, there's sort of similar things that are, that are already going on in, in these organizations that we think that we think we can draw from when it comes to AI. And similarly, on the export side, countries could say in a kind of multilateral uh, export regime way that they're not going to export the inputs 
into AI technologies to jurisdictions that don't have certification from the International Standard Setting Organization. So that's sort of how we think it could, could work. And as I say, I don't think it solves all problems, uh, but it's, it's sort of a, an interesting, uh, to us, an interesting uh, potential uh, institutional model to consider. Yeah, and you could see a situation. Say, say that one country, say, say that Denmark refuses to sign this, to sign up for this, for these standards. Well, then, potentially AI companies within Denmark would would pressure the government to to sign up for the standards, so they could export their products, earn money on the international market. So you could see the the incentives turning the other way, as opposed to. The, the incentives of the Danish government and the Danish AI companies being aligned in the sense that they want to push ahead as, as quickly as possible and they don't want, they don't want to be regulated in, in any way, there would now be some form of incentives for, uh, for signing up for, for these uh, standards. So I, I, it's, a, it's an interesting proposal, I think. Uh, that's great, Gus. We, uh, you know, we're trying to build support for it one person at a time. So we, we're, really, we're really glad to have you on board, absolutely. <laughs> I think we we should run through a list of objections to to the whole project of of AI governance. The 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 kind of common theme here is just skepticism about the motives of the institutions or the actors involved. If we if we start with with the governments involved, maybe maybe we set up a, an international organization and we use this organization to monitor different AI companies in different countries. Couldn't one government simply gain information about what 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 uh, companies in other countries are doing and use that information to advance its their own ai capabilities so pretend you could see the the monitoring process involving gaining information that would be useful for for increasing your own uh, ai uh, progress absolutely i think that's uh, really the right worry to have and and i think that the frontier ai states will have exactly that worry and so we really need to to consider it if if we're going to get buy-in from some of those key key actors. On the other hand, I I guess I would say that um, you know if we feel like we want some form of international AI governance, the version where you have an international organization that's actually looking at firms, that seems to have that proliferation aspect in a much much stronger sort of sense. Um, whereas, I, so I think the main proliferation aspect when it when it comes to uh, the kind of, if you will, ICAO model that that uh, we've proposed or jurisdictional certification model that that we've proposed is when it comes to knowledge that the regulator would need in order to set standards. And yes, I think that it's entirely possible that um, that the regulator would need to know things that some countries around the world would would consider, harmful forms of proliferation. But I think we shouldn't sort of assume that that's always the case. I think it's likely to be the case sometimes for some standards, but isn't sort of broadly across the board uh, likely likely to be the case. And I think there are some models also for, for sort of dealing with the kinds of sensitive information that, for instance, a government or a firm might communicate to the international organization. Um, so one model, for instance, is, is the IAEA after it decided that it was going to take information from state intelligence services. So a few decades ago, it had previously had thought, no, 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 that is dangerous to do that because then 
things could be revealed selectively for political gain, and that would be a bad thing. But then it realized, well, there's a lot of things we don't know that intelligence services do know, so we want to be able to take on some of that information. And it adopted a set of rules uh, and approaches to taking on that information and, and trying to really keep it keep it secret. So for instance, states have the ability to go and talk to the de general director directly uh, and I think one other person uh, in a room if they, if they don't want to reveal information to others. I think that there will be, that the specifics here will be very consequential and important, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't sort of rule out the approach in advance because I think we have models of it in other contexts and I think you know, there are ways of kind of mitigating, hopefully, if not fully, uh, some of the issues. There's even more skepticism about the motives of, of the governments involved here. Uh, you, might, you might say different governments have, have their own motives and they, they might pretend to care about uh, AI safety, but really they care about, say, national power and, and specifically the power balance between them and another country. The US might think, uh, let's try to slow down China by implementing some, some safety measures. And China might think, let's try to catch up to the U.S. by implementing safety measures. How do we know whether the, I mean, in, in some sense, this is a fully general problem that, that we can't really solve. But do we, how can we assess whether uh, governments are being sincere in, in their um, efforts to, to regulate AI? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I think you're absolutely right that we shouldn't expect you know, we talked about zero failure rates, and, and I don't think this is necessarily a model with a zero failure rate. I, I don't. I think it, it ameliorates some issues, but um, if the civilian actors, uh, you know, we think they have incentive to do things that uh, even one failure is uh, catastrophic, then probably we, we need to accordion, sort of we need to expand uh, what the international regime is, is doing. But I just don't see a uh, a potential for expanding it too much right now. Uh, in the future, it's possible that there'd be more appetite uh, for for that sort of thing. Yeah, so maybe it's also worth just mentioning that, you know, sort of allowing enforcement to happen at the domestic level, at least enforcement on firms to happen at the domestic level, as opposed to uh, the sort of incentives on jurisdictions is, I think, important here because there's less sort of trust, if you will, that's required going in. So I think you know, the, these sorts of concerns about, okay, maybe this other jurisdiction won't be doing X or Y are, uh, first of all, more live in the security space than they are in the civilian space, but they exist also in the civilian space. On the other hand, if you're allowing the enforcement to happen at the domestic level, uh, then that gives more flexibility uh, to to domestic regulators and and to the domestic uh, government as a whole, if they actually do feel like regulations are specifically targeting them and and they're having a sort of negative effect on their international security, they would have the ability to uh, to simply uh, not not enforce them. Now that could then have implications in terms of international markets, but uh, maybe that would be a kind of way to strike the balance between not so uh, scary the regulations from the point of view of regulators and countries that they're not willing to enter into the agreement in the first place, but also significant enough that they would have incentives for compliance. But you know, <laughs> this is all 
at a hope. I think we're still trying to figure out what the best approaches to international governance are. Uh, and, and I mean, there's also the question of how some people who have been looking at, at uh, their own uh, countries, uh, AI companies, they come to the, to the international uh, governance uh, organization and they say, We've, we have this data, we have, we've, we've found out these things. How do you know uh, whether you can trust them? And how do, how do the other countries that are members of the standard setting body know whether they can trust the information coming from the domestic reg- regulators? And here we might, this maybe ties back to the question of verification that we talked about. Maybe there's some way to present something that's objective, that can't be tampered with, that has some, some form of technical solution where you can present something that's, uh, that can be proven to, to, be, uh, uh, to be true information. So that's a great question. Uh, you can, we can look to some of the models that we have from some of these other regimes and, and other industries. Uh, so uh, the um, Financial Activities Task Force has the ability to request uh, all sorts of information from uh, jurisdictions, and jurisdictions under the regime are obligated to comply with it. So there, again, is this balancing question of what sorts of information would they be able to request, and would it be uh, proliferating, and that would have to all be be worked out. That that would be sort of the, the details of of the monitoring. But probably, uh, you know, there would be a set of variables that they could ask about that countries would be required to to disclose, and that would provide some level of monitoring. And then there might also be, just like in the case of the IAEA, there might be all sorts of monitoring that, let's say, national intelligence services are also doing, and they could provide further information just like they do to the IAEA. They could provide further information to, uh, to the proposed international organization in this context. So there's other sorts of information that uh, you can make credible by giving the, the, the sort of the backup. You know, again, just similar to, you know, if you're presenting intelligence information, you might disclose your sources or you might not. And similarly here, if you're saying, well, you know, maybe it's information that you have about an algorithmic advancement and, and you know that, um, that actually the, the rate of algorithmic progress uh, has, has shot up. And so that implies a, a different sort of regulation or maybe a different sort of bar for, for what um, sorts of systems uh, require licensing or, or something like that. Um, and you you could say, well, we think that um, that actually we need scrutiny of smaller systems than we did before because of this change in what we now understand about uh, algorithmic excuse me algorithmic progress. So that's a possibility, and maybe that would be credible, and maybe it wouldn't because maybe that would seem like putting up some sort of barrier to some other actor or something like that, but maybe in order to make it credible, a country could say, well, here's the evidence. Here, here, here's what you do, you know? And of course, there'd be a trade-off there. They wouldn't necessarily want to do that. Perhaps that could be proliferating. Um, so, you know, there'd be, I think, you know, some trade-offs to be, to be weighed. And, it, you know, exactly how they do that, I think, would be case by case, but, you know, certainly a set of difficult problems. There's also a skepticism about the motives of the companies involved. So, so right now we have the, the top AI companies in the U.S. Uh, being basically calling for regulation and, and being kind of open to regulation. We discussed earlier whether this is, this is an attempt to, to front run the process to, to make sure that, you don't get, that they don't get regulations that they, they, that they consider too strict, uh, basically. But 
another interpretation that I've heard is that this is this is a, an attempt to capture the the whole regulatory process and uh, make sure that that the the rules are favorable to them and potentially are disfavorable to their um, competitors. You could you could see how it might be in their interest to set up a system of rules that are difficult and expensive to comply with, such that new AI startups can't afford the the legal burden of complying with these rules and that they kind of cement uh, their their market dominance. I think these are um, exactly the right questions to ask. I think we should have these suspicions of industry all the time, and I think we should be wary of um, centralizing. Uh, economic power in a small set of companies. I think these are, uh, I think they're real costs to doing that, and um, and so I think it's it's the right set of questions. But I sort of want to say that you know even paranoids have enemies. Uh, that is, uh, you know even if there uh, might be um, some some downsides here, there's also some uh, potentially uh, reasons to to think about some of these regulations. Um, and people have been really concerned about licensing in this way. The regulatory burden of licensing would be would be onerous and and I think that's the right question to ask. On the other hand, you know, ultimately we probably want for some uh, for some systems we want kind of go no go decisions just like we have for buildings. Can you build a building? Well, you know, it's got to stand up, right? And and even, you know, before you get to build it, uh, you know, you have to go through all sorts of engineering sign-offs and and other sign-offs. Are there financial costs to that? Yes, there are financial costs to that. Um, but uh, we we think it's a good idea, and and we still we still think that um, that we should should have those things. I I think somewhat more speculatively, I'm a little skeptical that the regulatory burden would be um, the kind of major hurdle uh, that would be making it hard for smaller players to to, to get in into things. Um, I mean, if, certainly if we're talking about training systems from scratch, uh, there are, you know, the, the costs of training a model, I think, are going through a billion uh, a billion dollars to train a cutting edge LLM. So, you know, that's a pretty significant hurdle right there. Um, I sure hope that the regulatory costs are, are less than a billion dollars. But, but, you know, again, I think, you know, these sorts of issues around centralizing power are really important ones. I'm glad people are raising them. Yeah, and maybe uh, just a, a final worry here. This is skepticism about again the 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 whole project of of AI governance. But this the worry is that we will overregulate basically. So this this is about whether we will slow down AI progress in a way that that we might, when we look back on it, uh, have, have wanted that we didn't do. So AI could. We've all heard about these these kind of projections. We could see a revolution in medicine. We could see. a revolution in how many uh, industries uh, function and we could see incredible kind of uh, productivity gains that could help all of us. And so how do we avoid turning AI into uh, what happened with nuclear power, where uh, it is now kind of so regulated that it's very difficult to build a new power plant, even though nuclear uh, power is pretty safe compared to to other other forms of, of energy generation. Basically, the question is, how do we regulate in a smart way in which we avoid overregulation? I think we have to be aware that this is a danger. You know, we have to be be careful of it uh, all around. I think if we are adopting regulation and it looks as you, if it looks as you describe the nuclear power industry, then that's a real worry. But I don't think we're 
there or near there right now, I think it's it's unlikely that we will get all the way there, uh, given uh, the sensitivity to exactly this issue in governments around the world. And I think just a broader point about technological progress, I, I don't think it's controversial to say that it seems to be speeding up. Not that it necessarily is, but I think it it seems that way. And it seems like there are some drivers of it continuing to speed up. People have noticed, I mean, Rachel Carson said the problem in the modern world is there is no time. That is no time to develop appropriate regulations. So if we gave ourselves a little more time uh, to figure things out, I think that would have also uh, some benefits in addition to the real costs that you point out. Fantastic. Robert, thanks for coming on. It's, it's been super interesting for me. Oh, thank you, Gus. Uh, thanks for chatting. I really appreciate it.